Welcome to The Five, a podcast built to inform nonprofits about critical functions that will improve their organization. I'm your host, Eric Morcheski, CEO and co-founder of Nimble Strategies. We are bringing The Five to you as a part of our company's five-year anniversary celebration with thought leaders from across the country. Welcome to The Five. Hi, we're here today with Derek Oskal, the Senior Program Officer of the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. We're here today to talk about a pretty exciting topic in, in the world, artificial intelligence, and especially artificial intelligence for nonprofits. Derek, thank you so much for being here with us today. Can you give us your background and, and how you ended up with Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation and in a Senior Program Officer role? Sure. Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. So I've been at the foundation for the last uh, almost nine years consecutively, but I'm actually a returnee to the foundation. I worked there from 06 to 08. And part of what led me to uh, return to the foundation, when my first child was born, I was on paternity leave and I was listening to the uh, president of the foundation at the time give the, a state of entrepreneurship address. And it occurred to me that I was still following this work quite closely, despite uh, having not worked at the foundation for several years at that point. So I reached back out and there was a position that was a good fit for me on the research team. And, you know, suddenly very quickly, I found myself starting a new job with a new baby and then moving all in, the, in a period of a few weeks, which has made everything else since then seem pretty easy. That was a pretty stressful time. But uh, one of the things that brought me there is like the foundation has had a focus kind of helping people achieve financial stability, focus on upward mobility and economic prosperity and through multiple lenses over the years. So that that's included things like education and entrepreneurship, kind of with the overarching goal of providing opportunities, regardless of, you know, race, gender, or geography. And uh, as one of those charges, when I rejoined in 2015, at the time was about what was behind declining entrepreneurship rates at the time. There, so despite entrepreneurship being everywhere, you know, uh, Shark Tank on TV, uh, magazines, the prevalence of so many famous tech founders, you know, in actual terms of like in the data, like entrepreneurship wasn't doing quite as well. And in some of the early looks at that, trying to, you know, unravel that mystery, how entrepreneurship could be everywhere, but in the data, tech seemed to possibly be playing some part of that role. Uh, so changing technologies might be changing the way that people were working was, was were some theories. Uh, some early attempts to measure like gig economy work showed that maybe that was not quite true at that time, actually, uh, at least depending on how you ask the question. Uh, that appears to maybe have changed quite a bit in the last several years. So th things like Uber, DoorDash, platforms that are, are commonplace now, uh, they weren't nearly as large in 2015. Some of them that didn't even exist in 2015. Uh, and I think that maybe explains some of it, but we've actually had kind of a, a, a strange thing happen since the pandemic, which is that entrepreneurship rates are way up, pretty much at least looking at business registrations. And it, it's been sustained. So it wasn't just like after the initial drop from the pandemic, uh, where it just kind of uh, seemed to be at a higher level. And I do think some of that is technology fueled. It's, uh, and some of that is about the way that the pandemic kind of forced us to work differently as well, too. Uh, so things like hybrid work, remote work, it provides people an opportunity to try things on the side easier, too, I think, is part of it. But then, of course, throughout all of this, you know, talk about technology is, is hard to do these days, especially without talking about artificial intelligence. And I, I think that has really interesting implications, not just for entrepreneurship, but actually probably far more for like workers and work itself as well. 
So you've gotten a, a nice background in there for yourself. And just for those people who aren't really aware, can you explain really the focus in, in the Ewing, in Mary and Kaufman Foundation and what it does and where it does it? Obviously, foundations don't typically say, you know, we do everything for everyone. Oh, sure. So we have a focus on Kansas City, but hopefully as Kansas City is a you know national model for you know, kind of uplifting everyone to have that chance at financial stability and upward mobility uh, and economic prosperity. So that has been done, you know, over the few decades that we've existed in, in, you know, multiple different ways. So, you know, I mentioned earlier about some of the uh, entrepreneurship team research that we've done, but, you know, the foundation has done a lot of work in Kansas City. We have a Ewing Marion Coughlin School. We've had scholarship programs, uh, working with community organizations to help not just, you know, educational pathways, but kind of those wraparounds of uh, services as well, too. And, you know, we're we're going through uh, some changes that I think are pretty exciting. Um, I don't have anything to share yet, but uh, keep watching, you know, our, our media channels. And I think it'll be pretty exciting for everyone who follows the foundation, especially in Kansas City, to see where we're headed. Yeah, Kansas City's on such a, I feel like, rebirth right now. I, I just, I feel like there's just been nothing but positive news hitting nationally on Kansas City. So, I'm sure the foundation has some role in all of that as well, um, even if it's uh, quietly in the background uh, doing it all. Yeah, so, we brought Taylor Swift here. No, yeah, uh, <laughs> that was all you. Yeah, you introduced uh, Taylor Swift to Jason Kelsey and uh, or Travis Kelsey. Sorry, uh, uh, yes. you have the you have the brother with the shirt on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that was all you got it. No, it's it's been great though to have like so much good attention about Kansas City. Yeah, I've been here. I grew up in a small town about 100 miles south of Kansas City. But in my adult life, I've called Kansas City home. And so it's been pretty remarkable from my perspective to see like the transitions and, and changes that took place. Like downtown Kansas City itself is you know pretty exciting now. And um, that wasn't always the case. And so it's great to have that positive attention. And it definitely does not hurt that the Chiefs have been great <laughs> with yeah. Patrick Mahomes. You can get the Royals to play better. And that only helped things move along faster. So moving moving away from sports uh, for a little bit, you know, we're, we're here to talk about artificial intelligence for nonprofits. And why do you think artificial intelligence for nonprofits, why does it mean something to you? Why should a nonprofit kind of care about artificial intelligence? Sure. I think the main thing to start with is just a little bit of an overview of what is happening. And so when I saying the word artificial intelligence, I guess just to clarify, I'm referring mostly to like the large language models like ChatGPT um, at OpenAI uh, that kind of came about a year ago, a little over a year ago, like they came really into the, the public forefront of like that this is now more than something that's kind of funny uh, to play around with to like it actually being a tool that can do some really powerful things, both in good and bad ways. Um, and I think that's especially important for nonprofits because nonprofits, they have to think really hard about efficiency, but by the nature of the way they're structured, like being able to do more with less is really important. And if used well, I think large language models can offer that to nonprofits, but there are also things that will make it challenging and hard as well too. So to go just a little bit deeper into artificial intelligence, I guess a few things about what it what it means. So like not every job is like at risk of being completely eliminated by ChatGPT, but certain jobs are bundles of like multiple tasks. Some of those tasks are at risk. And that's been true for a long time. So things like Calendly, for example, like replaces like some of the need that you would have had for 
dedicated back and forth on calendar to, to find times to do things. But, you know, that doesn't replace someone's job completely, but it can change it tremendously. And artificial intelligence offers the opportunity to do that as well. So there's two things happening. There's like work augmentation, where it can change what you're capable of doing. Uh, the same way a computer allows you to, you know, produce content much faster than just writing by hand. And then there's the replacement effect as well, too. It does replace things that you do. So there are tons of possibilities, and those are already manifesting now. I think it's helpful to not focus on the extremes. And by that, I mean, I don't think it's super helpful to think about AI in terms of Skynet taking over the world. And, and not that I don't think that is a 0% possibility, but it, it's just not helpful in this context. Uh, I also think it's not helpful to think of this as nothing like, oh, I tried AI. It didn't work. It's told me wrong stuff. It's not happening. People are using it and, and quite a few people. Uh, it can be pretty hard to tell actually about the usage rate for a variety of reasons. But it, but one thing's clear is that it's already very polarizing. People have some pretty strong views about this. Um, and there's also already a lot of issues. So first and foremost, I think uh, one of the big issues are around like kind of equity in the space, like because these AI models are trained on the internet and the internet is uh, full of all kinds of things, both good and horrible. Um, so I think about work done before large language models by like Lafia Noble. Uh, she had a book, Algorithms of Oppression, you know, thinking through like how like things like autocomplete can have really different outcomes based on race and what kind of information already exists on the internet. So if that's your training data, you have to be really careful with what comes out of using these models. And then there you know, are issues like this really manifested with schools right away with fact checkers, like you know, students were suddenly using this and teachers were, would try to use things to say like, oh, this was you know, not created uh, by, you, by you, this is fake. Sometimes it was right. Sometimes it was wrong because the fact checkers don't work. And especially early on, it had a real penalty for non-native speakers. And even now, they still do not work well, based on my understanding, even as long as you do just the minor amount of tweaks to that, whatever the output is. And then other issues like misinformation. So again, even before this stuff got particularly popular, like, like MIT professor Sanan Aral had a lot of information about how powerful misinformation can be. Some of the things that are now you're able to do with this information, it will make it very hard to believe some of the things you see and hear moving forward. And, and that is a weird space. And the reason I think that matters, especially for nonprofits, is like nonprofits, I feel, are especially, uh, their, their power lies in their relationships and, and building that trust. And so as information, if we get to a point where people are like, I don't trust information, that's not great in general for humanity, in my opinion. Um, but it also it has some real risk for the way that we operate and the relationships we have with people. So I think it matters for nonprofits in one way because it matters for everyone. But then I, I can get into some more details about some more specific ways, especially. Yeah. So let's kind of dive into those ways. I think looking through the five of artificial intelligence for nonprofits, you know, what or how should nonprofits be looking at to utilize artificial intelligence for their organizations? Sure. I'll start one with the current impact on grants. So for nonprofits that rely on receiving grants in order to, for operations, I think uh, there's a few things to, to think about. One, like thinking about the act of grant writing itself. So I had an opportunity to participate on a panel last early winter, the Grant Professionals Association Conference. 
And I'll say this, like grant writers are learning to use this tool too. So whether a nonprofit has the grant writer on staff or they contract out that work or work with a third party to do that kind of work, if the thing that the tool is really powerful at is creating content and writing, and that is one of the uses for LLMs, then there's a real impact on not only your ability to write grants, but also knowing that you know those that are also seeking funds will be using the tool as well too. Uh, but one thing I think that's important to keep in mind is kind of the goal of grant writing is not to be really great at writing a justification for a grant. The goal is to get good work funded, and that's not changing. So if this tool can make that easier for nonprofits to do, then I think it can be powerful in that way. And I also don't know that it necessarily means that there will be less need for grant writing. So I'll provide a historical example uh, that about a technological change the laundry machine. So prior to the invention of the modern-ish laundry machine, like laundry was done in the household and it would require, you know, about, I I forget the exact amount of time, but the amount of time hasn't changed too much, even with the advent of the washing machine, because what happened is now we have way more clothing per person. And so the amount of time uh, that gets spent on doing laundry has not changed, but what has changed is that we have way more clothing. So something like large language models, they seem like they might replace and remove the need for like grant writers, but actually it could increase because there might, it might be so much easier now to try for multiple grants that you might want to do more grant writing than an organization would have before, but that that's not always the case. So technological change can have these really unequal effects can be really kind of hard to see uh, how it will have on the net impact. So apart from grant writing too, like, I think this has an effect on like grant makers too. So like those who are uh, providing grants, sometimes they will have guidelines already about artificial use, but in general, even if they don't, it kind of the existing standards of ethics, you know, still apply. So like the same way that you may be applying for a grant somewhere and they don't have a internet policy or how you Google thing policy, but you know, the same standards of like, you're responsible for the information you submit and you're liable for whatever information you've provided, uh, the expectation being that you've verified that it is a correct and appropriate, uh, whether you used AI or not. And then I think that longer term, that there's a chance that this could change the types of information that grant makers uh, request from grant seekers. So for example, you know, one of the conversations at that conference I mentioned was really centering on like, you know, there are certain sections that you know, if I put in information from AI, it sounds just like if I spent a bunch of time writing it. If that's true, then like, why are, why is that being asked? Like it's not providing anything substantive and important to evaluate the proposed work. And so I think there's a chance that those sections could go away as a result of this. I guess it's also possible AI could write information that another AI will read and evaluate. I mean, we, we, we could reach that point at some point too. Um, but I think it, to summarize for the impact on you know grants itself, again, it's not entirely obvious, but it can certainly be a tool that could help nonprofits um, seek more grants than they could have with the same staff before. It may also open them up to more competition as well too, because this will be true for everyone. Well, and I could see, I mean, in its simplest form, identifying other grants that you weren't aware of. You know, I applied for this grant through the Kauffman Foundation and now to chat GPT, tell me, tell me what other grants like this exist, you know, that we would have had to use GrantStation or some of those other programs and kind of dug through and tried to find what information was there. And it may, may make awareness 
of opportunities more accessible for groups across the country. And I could see it, to your point, also meaning instead of 10 groups applying to that grant because more awareness was brought to it, 100 groups applied. There's a good and a bad that goes with that. Yes. Right. And, and then, you know, kind of just along those lines, too, like it, it's it's possible that could mean that uh, some organizations that do only like larger grants could now start doing smaller grants because they could automate some aspects of this so that it, the burden was lower for processing and it could make it easier for them to do, you know, types of grants that they wouldn't weren't able to do before, which could unlock abilities for partnerships that didn't uh, exist in the past. Uh, but again, it's hard to say because it's not obvious at this early stage of this technological change exactly how it's you know going to be finalized with how people use it but certainly people are using it on the front end for sure um, whether or not it ends up drastically changing processes you know that's a much more deliberate strategic change for organizations but not both uh, of all sizes so I'd be curious to see where that lands i mean grants make up a portion of many nonprofits budgets on an annual basis and uh, definitely is something that nonprofits continue to look for and look towards both public grants and private grants. Mm-hmm. And so building awareness and being more responsive towards some of those grants will have an effect. What that effect ends up being, I think, to be determined. <laughs> so, yeah. So so after you get through these grants and now my organization has so much more money to spend <laughs> on our mission, what else are you looking at for artificial intelligence? I think, uh, so kind of I alluded this to in kind of the overview of of what's happening, but like thinking about the impact on staff and work at, inside the nonprofit. So uh, thinking about the use in the workplace, I feel like m- maybe in, in some places it's a, almost taboo to talk about, like, uh, are you using AI like in your daily work? And I think that's a little unfortunate because without being open about usage, it, it's really hard to determine policies, determine like what type of support and training is appropriate and necessary. Uh, but it, but for nonprofits, especially and and those that with limited resources, it can be really helpful to uh, help new or less experienced staff be better and faster. Like a lot of the research, you know, studying like the use cases of this, just a little bit of training about how to use the, the AIs. And I'll, I'll speak about that a little bit later, perhaps, but it can really help those with you know uh, lower skill set or experience in you know certain uh, new areas. So in a way, like artificial intelligence can be used a little bit like staff augmentation. Maybe you know budgets are stretched thin. You don't have the the funds to hire a full time uh, you know extra hand, but like this could give you an opportunity to do a little more with uh, the same amount of resources. But yeah, as we kind of mentioned, like that longer term term impact is really unknown on work and workers. Um, and it's changing fast. So even if the uh, technology got no better than it is today, it could drastically be changing the way that people work and the, uh, you know, everything from like change the tone of my email to be more, you know, diplomatic to like, I wrote too much, make this shorter. I didn't write enough, make this longer. It's like having a personal assistant that is, hallucinates and lies sometimes, which is a real threat and, and something to be to be cognizant of, um, but also is willing to do it every time you ask. And that's very strange. Yeah. I mean, I think of some of the use cases we've used it for with clients. And I think like anything, you kind of have to audit your own work with it, right? In that you can't mm-hmm. just accept it as it is and say, do the work, send. Um, but 
Canva is, is one of the more common tools used in nonprofits today for graphic design. And they've started with their own iteration of what they're calling artificial intelligence. I'm not sure that I would quite call it that, but where you can kind of take a few images and kind of turn those into a video through their artificial intelligence. You can you can kind of give it some light commands and it's it's scratching the surface, right, of AI. And it does have an impact on staff because maybe I don't have a graphic designer on staff or a marketing person and and it's making my life easier because as long as I've populated that information into Canva, it can start to get better like anything at understanding the tone I use for social media, understanding how traditional or modern or anything else that I want my graphics to look. And the more that impact on staff, two pieces in there is one training, right? That nothing is just, I know how to do this right away. Your staff has to learn how to use the artificial intelligence. And Uh then two is just, you know, making sure that it's having a positive impact on your staff and not just uh, being felt as a redundancy or a replacement. Yeah, absolutely. I think where it will be most empowering for workers is where you're able to use the technology to do the things that aren't fun mm-hmm. <laughs> like or where that you don't find meaning also. Like it can be really good at doing technical documentation that you need to have, but that maybe it can be hard to just dedicate the time to. So it can give you that first pass Um, So you can be like, okay, yes, yes, yes. Nope, this is not right. Where you have the expertise to be able to call out the things that are wrong. If you're asking it to provide content on an area that you don't know yourself, it's going to be very convincing and it'd be very hard to say like, okay, it's like two truths and a lie. Like I know something in here is wrong, but I don't know which one it is. Like you have to have the expertise on whatever you're asking it about. And so it asks for kind of a new skill for workers, or at least not a new skill, but one that is probably going to be a little more important, I think, which is judgment, the role of judgment. Like how do you determine what is true and what is not? To a degree, like that's been true with just internet. I mean, we all at this point now have been so ingrained with the internet in our lives that we have kind of a intuitive like, if I search for this and it comes from this source, I don't feel great about it. If it comes from here, it's probably good. And if it comes from here, I feel really good about it. And interestingly enough, some of us will have different lists for what <laughs> is on each of those uh, buckets, but we still have kind of that code. And we don't really have that yet with large language models in, in terms of like what it outputs. We're kind of at the, I know this is mostly right, but I don't know which part's wrong unless you know the topic. And then hopefully it's pretty obvious, but it is very convincing. It will make up things that seem absolutely right. Remember we had an individual reach out to us about uh, verifying a statistic from one of our reports. I didn't know it was a chat GPT request at first, but like they, when I inquired more, because I couldn't find exactly what they were looking for. They're like, oh, chat GPT said that it was from this report and I couldn't find it on your website, but they said that it might be private. I'm like, well, that report doesn't exist, but it sounds like one that we would have done. And huh. so, uh, and the and the the general statistic was approximately right, but made up. And that's just a real risk uh, of using this technology now and probably for quite a while. Yeah, I think uh, judgment is a, a good qualifier for artificial intelligence, at least currently. You know, as it as it improves itself, maybe it'll improve its own judgment, <laughs> but that's a, a to be determined future iteration, maybe. So 
we've we've looked at grants, the impact on staff and judgment. You know, what else should people be thinking about for their nonprofits? I think maybe one of the the best things to do, especially if you don't already have like a plan or view of how to use this technology, is to start with a landscape of your own organization where AI could help. Uh, so these tools are kind of like having access to a world of synthetic data, which is a lot different than a lot of technological advances in the past, where um, I think some of the conversation now is like, oh, you know, about privacy, making sure I don't put in like data that I should not into a machine and give thereby giving it access to, to lots of other people or a system outside of what you have control of. That's true. Like you should just in general, never do that with anything. If something is not supposed to go onto a public server, you know, don't put it in in there. But it's not super powerful about helping you with that data anyway, because like a, most organizations of any size really don't really have enough data that the advantage of the large language model would help you process it better. Where it's useful is like where it doesn't exist, you know, help you, you know, walk through the, the variety of topics where you might need help, where you don't have expertise or you're like, hey, I'm thinking about trying to partner with these types of organizations, help me find where they've done this work in the past. And then you'll have to do the homework of check the links because some of it will be made up, like I said, but some of it uh, may uh, help save you a lot of time on kind of that landscaping. So figure out where it can act like an assistant for you. And we've talked about some of these already, but things like writing, drafts, graphic design, early stages as well too, changing tone, you know, these landscape analysis, but again, yeah, verify everything. It's so prone to hallucinations and, you know, you're responsible for the output. There's certainly a lot of lingering legal questions hanging around, like what happens with the content that's created from this? What type of information is it okay for these models to train on? Uh, there will be stutters forward and back, I think, about how, what these models output, uh, even as it changes over time. One thing I will say is like, for now, you know, find those who are working heavily in this space. One person I follow pretty closely is a, a grantee that we worked with in the past, uh, Ethan Mollick. He's done just a tremendous amount in this space and has done a really good job, especially from the education perspective, but just in general about, you know, ways that you can try to treat this as an opportunity uh, but, I mean, there are numerous others worth following, uh, Brookings Institution, uh, Stanford Digital Economy Lab, and several at MIT as well uh, mentioned, you know, that are, are thinking about this uh, and the impact it has. But, you know, it's important to realize, like, this is a little bit unique, too, because through Bing, you can get ChatGPT4 for free, which means that everyone, you know, on, you know has access to the state of the art technology right now, which is kind of crazy uh, that that's available for free. And there, there are certainly, you know, the, you know, the GPT store and custom AIs like that could be appropriate for organizations, but I would not start there. It doesn't make sense to like uh, sink an investment into something until you know what's appropriate for your organization. And, and, and frankly, right now, the, the, the larger model is going to be mo more powerful for most of your needs anyway. So I, I wouldn't start with any of the custom models yet, but it, it is unique in that just to spend a little bit more time on like everyone having access to the frontier model that is that's a little bit unique like usually technology ripples out to government or firms military or wealthy individuals are able to spend on it or wealthy companies and then it becomes more mainstream and then it becomes uh, available to everyone and this is moving not only at just a tremendous speed but also tremendously open to start and there's also, you know, open models uh, that are getting quite powerful as well, too. Google's model, Gemini, 
I believe that's what they called it. Um, the one that's coming after Bard promises to be quite powerful as well, too. So there's a lot on the horizon and it, the capabilities of what's possible is is all over the place. I know we're starting to see associations and organizations creating their own, um, which I, I find interesting. I know PCMA, which is a, an association or associations, um, and they've created their own that's generative AI that really is looking at basics that associations would utilize. So, oh, I'm going to write speaker bios, and I don't really want to take the time to write that. And so you can take a few inputs, and it'll generate a speaker bio for you, or you can write a session description or some of those type of things. And so I'm finding that interesting that groups are deciding, let's not use something like a chat GPT for that. I'll use something that's really geared more towards my industry. And I, to be determined whether these will become more siloed or not, I kind of doubt it, kind of like we use Google, that we don't use nine different versions of Google to search. We use Google and that takes us to where we want to go. And then maybe we have to do a little bit of searching within that website. Yeah, it's, um, I, I don't know where it will land either. I mean, it, it it is in the same way that like, if you have organizations or websites that are like repositories for like the best information on something, uh, you might use Google as a search within that website to find the right things. And so mm -hmm. I could have certainly imagine where like organizations or uh, associations have kind of the backbone of all of their data and infrastructure as the, the key resource to pull from. And then you use the powerful tool on top of that to make sure that you're searching the right thing. Uh, I, I mean, it, it could certainly be you know helpful to do that too. Um, I, I think in general though, like you can do so much kind of out, outside the box um, if you learn how to, to use them well. I know we've talked a little bit about grants and impact on staff, judgment, landscape. Is there anything else that the nonprofits should be thinking about as they're starting to look at, at AI? My recommendation would be the kind of the, that last point, which is like, learn how to use the tool. Like that's the one thing you get to control. You know, technology changes whether you want it to or not, but whether or not you use it is up to you. And so I would say to the degree that you can experiment and keep records of the prompts that worked well, do that internally. Like there are things that are unique to your organization that you can keep a record of, like you can have a learning organization by keeping good records of what you've done, what this, what it did well and what it didn't. And, and so along those lines, there's some just general things that to be better at using the AI. So I mentioned really early on, you know, like some people have used it and like, oh, it was not good. It wasn't useful. And it, it might be because of how they tried to use it. So mm -hmm. this is changing constantly and it may, could change tomorrow. Like literally this stuff is changing so fast, but like some things that you can do to, to get better responses or to tell the AI, you know, what to do, but be precise, tell it its role. Like you're a mentor, you're an outside investor, you're a collaborator with me. You're playing the role of a partner. Tell it its role. Then tell it a goal. Like I want to, you know, write a grant proposal that is going to make sense for XYZ organization. Then give it step-by-step -step instructions, provide constraints, like don't say this, blah, 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 or give an example. Like uh, this was a really good proposal by another group. Use that to work from you know, personalize it. Maybe you're using this as part of your onboarding process for new staff. So personalize the things that make, you know, that your organization has as rules or culture that makes sense. And then be interactive, like, you know, call out the mistakes when it says something like, 
hey, that's not a real report. Call it out. Say, that's not real. I wanted this. And, you know, change the tone. And then don't be afraid to restart if you're not getting the right results. Like if you're just putting in like, here's a link to a page, summarize this for me. It is kind of magical. It will do a fine job doing that. But it gets really powerful when you take the time to kind of build out that step-by-step, telling it its role, its goal, what you want it to do. You know, all of those that that prompt can really get you something quite more powerful. And if it doesn't work after that, then it maybe it's not right. I mean, it, it, there are certainly use cases where it may not help you. But I think if you typically go through that detailed work to, to really get it to work right, that you'll get a lot. And so, like I said, certainly keep track of that internally. It's, you find things that work, you can share if you have you know small teams or with others. My hope is that uh, we we get to a point that it's a little easier to create and share this impact. So like some of these things make sense to always stay internally in terms of like prompts or like what you what you've done. But a lot of it could make sense to share with others and outside. Like it would be wonderful to have a resource that multiple people could pull from. Like, hey, every small organization goes through trying to do this onboarding about how we do our grants. We use this. It was really helpful. So another organization could use the same type of prompt, just tweak it slightly. I will say whatever you document, add dates for when you used it, because you will get different responses over time. Like some uh, response that worked really well a year ago may not work tomorrow. And then, like I said, yeah, share publicly if appropriate, because, you know, like I mentioned Ethan Malik earlier, he's been, I think, really tremendous about being really public about sharing what prompting has worked and and why it worked and, uh, you know, understanding the limitations and the strengths. And I think, you know, everyone benefits from that. And that's especially important in the nonprofit space too, because, uh, you know, we talked about things like seeking grants and the impact on staff and work. And it sounds like it's, you know, competitive, but like by nature, a lot of the work that nonprofits do should be collaborative. And, and this is a space where these types of shared learnings don't hurt you to share. And they can really be powerful for helping bridge partnerships. And I mean, I think in in, be- in the best case scenarios, like these things can really help foster collaboration and making connections that wouldn't have existed before. But, you know, that's not the default. Uh, we get to choose how the technology impacts us to some degree. And that choice is really impacted by, you know, the effort we put forth in trying to make it a tool for collaboration rather than competition. Out of curiosity, when I've had Chad GPT write a few blog posts for some of the associations that we work with, or probably even for Nimble at different times, just uh, more out of personal curiosity. My personal opinion, I've always listed that this was written by Chad GPT because one, I don't want that plagiarism feeling uh, behind it in that I don't want someone thinking that I wrote it because I didn't. Two, if there is that this is incorrect, then I can kind of say, all right, well, we didn't write that either. And I made it very clear. What are your thoughts? Like, especially on the grant writing, I could see that one being a little more difficult for people to really want to share like, oh, I wrote, you know, half your grant with ChatGPT. Yeah, I would say a few things. Like one, if the organization where you're applying for a grant has a policy, follow whatever their policy is. Like, I mean, that is always the safe, appropriate thing to do. In general for, you know, writing content, I think I think it's helpful to flag that. I don't know that it matters in some sense by this. So like if it's the type of content where 
you want it to be your content, like I wouldn't use that. I wouldn't say I put in something and then I have ChatGPT do it, then it's not yours. You know, like if you want to be known for that content, do some more work. Like if you use ChatGPT to help you and I mean, if it wrote the whole thing, you, yeah, I think putting ChatGPT wrote this is fine um, to be clear about that. But in general, like, I mean, I, you know, when you po posted the blog, you know, two years ago, you didn't write, I Googled some of this. Mm -hmm. I used Wikipedia for some of it. Some of this I knew from ways that my brain doesn't remember how I learned this information. Like mm -hmm. you don't always source how you know all of the things or how you got there or that you use Microsoft Word versus, you know, Google Docs or something like that. And so at some point, like, using a chat GPT will be very hard to dis disentangle integrate, especially as like Microsoft is integrated, like with Copilot, this into some of the tools coming forward. Like, uh, I, I know there'll be ways to like feed the, the, like a document and create a PowerPoint from the document. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do with that? Like, did you create the PowerPoint? If you created the document, the content for the document, but you didn't do any of the slides that the, the mm -hmm. AI did that, like it gets, it can get messy pretty quickly. Uh, I don't think it ever hurts to err on the side of calling it out during this time, for sure. But uh, I, I guess back to that original point is like, yes, it can do that. I think it can be more powerful if you use it to to kind of combine with what you've done. I did, for, for example, like to take my notes for today, like about the things I wanted to talk about. I did that all by myself. Woo, look at me. But then I put it into ChatGPT to see if it had any suggestions. And it they weren't very useful with the, the first prompt that I tried. Mm -hmm. And then I, I tried a couple more and it had good gui general guidance about like being on a podcast and, and whatnot. So things that I didn't ask it, but that were still helpful. Uh, and so I, I guess I just say that because sometimes it could be really helpful. Like this could have been like I could have instead started with like, I'm about to go on a podcast. I need five great points about how nonprofits can use AI. I don't know what I would have gotten. It would have looked probably different than if I said, hey, I have this, make it better. Mm -hmm. It can be really good at both tasks. So like for that generating ideas, give me five completely different ideas about what I could say. Or I have this idea. I think I'm too repetitive. Make me sound smarter. It's good at that too. A mm -hmm. And it's like having access to an editor, an assistant. Yeah. Tell it what it's supposed to be doing. And it, it can be surprisingly good at that. Again, with all the caveats I described before about verify it, because it will also be very convincing at making you feel good about something that's wrong. So with all of this said, you know, how do you see AI for nonprofits changing kind of as we move forward? What are you seeing? Uh, obviously, you've got your crystal ball there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or maybe you just asked ChatGPT. No, no need for a crystal ball anymore. <laughs> I think the usage will just continue to pick up. I think it'll be hard to not use it because um, in a way, nonprofits are not competing against a robot to get grant funding. They're competing against other nonprofits that are using ChatGPT to get funding. And so uh, for like making grants or for just staff, staff augmentation or for marketing or for uh, content generation, the, the, the real competition is not a robot doing everything. It, it's a person using this technology. That That is every individual person's real competitor at this stage is a person using the technology versus just a person. Um, so just in the same way that you could do all of the work you do, maybe without the internet, you would be missing a lot by not searching to find what others have done. And this is a, another tool that can help you with that. Again, it's got all kinds of issues that we really have to wrestle with as a society, 
uh, in terms of like what to do with who is responsible for this data, uh, you know, copyright infringement, trademark, uh, whose work it's been trained on, the equity issues about the general internet as the tra training data, the misinformation and, and what we can trust and what we can't trust. Those are big things. I don't expect any individual nonprofit to solve that. <laughs> what I do expect is that they'll find ways to use it that can help them. And by using it and figuring out what works and what doesn't work, that means that we can all be better informed about helping shape that future about what's important. The same way that we have guardrails and best practices about the internet, or we have ability to push back when it does things wrong, it'll be hard to push back about saying that something doesn't work if you don't know how, to, if you don't use it or how to use it. Like, I, I think it can make us, I think it can help nonprofits be more powerful too, to have that voice about, you know, that this technology matters to them, whether they want it to or not, but that they get, also get to help shape it. Well, so we've referenced the Terminator, Taylor <laughs> Swift, MIT, Two Truths and a Lie. Is there yeah. anything else you want to leave listeners with before we go? <laughs> uh, that was that completed my bingo card. Yeah. Uh, the things I wanted to make sure I said. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing you had the free square in there because you only had four. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just, you know, the last thing be like, like I'm not particularly a, a, like a, a tech person uh, exactly. Like I am not technophobic either, but. I think that these types of things quickly can feel that way. I, I think it, that there's something a little unique about this technology that does seem a little magical. Uh, like we didn't really talk very much about like the visual stuff, which is mm -hmm. both sometimes amazing and creepy, um, but it's really powerful. And, you know, it can be fun too. Like, I mean, I like sometimes I, I use this with my daughters to like uh, create little short stories. Like we work on a prompt together and see what kind of story it can create. Some of those are good. Some of them are not good. Like, and uh, it's never clear to me before we, I push enter, which one is it, I'm going to get, if we're going to get a story we think is pretty entertaining or not, but I mean, play around with it. Like, you know, have it describe a phenomena, a complex phenomenon that you don't know as the, as a Seinfeld scene or, or you know, whatever you want. And um, some of it will be good and some of it won't be. And that that's a fun stage, but like, there is like real, impact that you can have using these tools. Um, and it, there are some real consequences for, you know, what it means for all the information we receive, like some of the, the video stuff that you're able to do now, if you have just some audio and video of people with pretty cheap tools, like you can fake a lot. Um, oh yeah. We're going to have you say a lot of extra stuff in here. Yeah. You certainly, <laughs> and uh, hopefully it's all good or at yeah. least noteworthy. Well, you're going to be uh, stumping for us for quite a bit here. I mean, talking about how great we are. <laughs> a lot, uh, you have a lifetime of content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And I really appreciate it. I think there's a lot that people will get out of this. And just, I mean, I think if nothing else, it's go in and try it. And then also trust, but verify. <laughs> if If yeah. there are no no other points to be taken from this is try it, you know, and learn how to use it, but then also trust, but verify. I think those are yeah. probably two good, good rules of thumb. Yeah. I, I mean, trust is a little strong. Even I would be like, this might be right after I verify it. Like I, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't quite trust anything it says, but I, I'm willing to start with it and yeah. if I can confirm it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much.
Well, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Five. Subscribe to our channel and make sure you catch every episode of The Five and reach out to Nimble Strategies today for help with your nonprofit.